I'm excited about some thoughts I wanted to share this morning. It's like a part two of something we did two weeks ago, starting um, about God's secret way of making us like Jesus. And um, didn't get to some of the main things I wanted to say two weeks ago, so I'm going to try to just jump right into it. One of the major things I think we really need to see, the church as a whole needs to see, is that God's eternal purpose is not to make us like Jesus. And at first that sounds shocking, but, but think about it. God's eternal purpose is not to make us like Jesus. That is a byproduct. It is a fruit of his eternal purpose. It, it definitely happens, and it is a byproduct of his eternal purpose. But if you see the eternal purpose as God making us like Jesus, then we've missed a very important piece to the puzzle as to how he makes us like Jesus. Because we're not going to see his heart. We're not going to see his love. And I, I believe, saints, that it's really it's awesome. I think the simple truth of the eternal purpose of God is simply this. And it's all throughout Scripture. God simply wants to lavish his love on you. He wants to adopt you as his son or daughter. And finally, he wants you and I to be where he is now and forever. That's it. That's his eternal purpose. He has come, he has come to lavish his love upon us, to bring us into his family, that he might bring many sons into glory, and that he would be with us in this life, with us, and in the life to come forever with us, and we with him. It's awesome. That's his, that's his eternal purpose. That's his heart. And if we don't see that right off the bat, then we tend to think that God's always working on me. God's always, you know, it's all about, you know, um, as Clark says, behavior modification or sin management. I get so weary sometimes when I hear radio programs and TV talks, Christian talk shows, and it's just all about sin and doing good and not sinning and doing better. And, you know, it's all about behavior, it seems like. Not all, not all the time. But what has, we've lost the, the uh, We've lost the romance of this thing. We've lost the romance. It's a bridegroom seeking a bride. I mean, the, revelation, the book of Revelation ends with this awesome, awesome declaration. Behold, I show you the Lamb's wife. Behold, the bride adorned in his glory. See, he's in love. It's a, it's a, it's a romance. It's a romance. It's a, he, the scripture says in Ephesians that he, he cherishes and nourishes his bride. He cherishes her. And nourishes his bride. That's the eternal purpose. The eternal purpose is God seeks a bride. God seeks a family. God wants that family to be where he is and he with them. Isn't that awesome? And you see that in the heart of when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and where, that where I am, you may be also. And John 14, awesome. John 14 and John 15 and John 16. Take a chance. When you get a chance, read 
John 14, John 15, and John 16. And look what Jesus is saying there because it's an amazing thing. We, that's another verse we have mistaught in the church. He did not go to build mansions in the sky. He wasn't talking about his second coming there when he says, I'll come back to you. He, when he said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, and I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also, I will come again and receive you unto myself. He's not talking about his second coming there. If you read the context, he says things like, the world's going to rejoice and you're going to be sorrowful. But you shall see me again in a little while, after a little while. And in that day when you see me, no man takes that joy from you. After a little while, you'll see me again. In that day, you shall know that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and now I am in you, and you are in me. He's not talking about 2,000 years later. He's talking about three days later. In fact, they make a big point of it. John makes a big point of it in John 14, 15, and 16, where he says, What does he mean after a little while, after a little while, after a little while? What does he mean after a little while, after a little it's three days and three nights. Well, what do you mean? He went to prepare a place for me in three days and three nights? You betcha. As they say in Fargo. He did. He, that's why he said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. Who's the Father's house? We know now Jesus himself is the Father's house. He said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. He wasn't talking about a temple with stone. He was talking, the scripture says he was talking about his own body. So he is the Father's house. He says, in my Father's house, there are many dwelling places that God has made it available that anybody who believes on me can be joined to me, can become living stones in this true temple, this living temple. So how did he prepare a place for me? He prepared a place for me through his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. The place has been prepared. He came back to them and said, it is done. Believe, whoever believes on me shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And by the hand of God, we're baptized into the Spirit of God, joined to the body of Christ by the Spirit of God. We're all made to drink of one spirit, the Scripture says, and become part of his body. The place he has prepared is in himself. It's awesome. But this is the point I want to make in this, this whole thing. Notice the Lord's heart. He said, I do this so that you may be where I am. See his heart? That's the eternal purpose. He seeks a bride. He seeks to love on us. He seeks to bring us into his family. He wants to be where we are. He wants us to be where he is. That's why Paul says we are now seated with him in heavenly places. That's why Jesus said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. He's with us now. It's possible now. We're in union with him now. It's awesome. That's his heart. Becoming like him is just a byproduct because you can't, God, in the wisdom of God, you cannot be joined to God and not become like him. You can't look at the face of God and not have your face start shining also, Moses said. Moses demonstrated. You see, God's ways are, are so awesome. His ways uh, take self-consciousness out, out of the equation. We're not self-conscious of ourselves trying to get better or trying to look like God or trying to imitate Christ. We are not trying to imitate Christ. You cannot imitate God. Only God can be like God. Only the life of God within can produce the fruit of God without. See, so we're not imitating. We are in union with him and allowing that which is in to manifest. Where Christ is being manifested in our life by fruit, by, by simply abiding. And this, this, this awesome, endless love, this I have loved you with an everlasting love. And with loving kindness, I have drawn you to myself. I brought you on eagle's wings to myself, he said to Israel. His desire is to be with us and for us to be with him. His last, almost his last breath on the cross demonstrates this eternal purpose when he 
pushed up on those nails and spoke to the thief next to him on the cross. And the thief said, Lord, remember me. Just remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus pushed up and said out of his heart, the very heart of God about this whole thing, the eternal purpose of everything. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, this day you'll be with me in paradise. You see it? You'll be with me. You'll be with me. You'll be with me. And of course, we know he means he was to descend in Abraham's bosom. That's why it's that day. That day he descended in Abraham's bosom. Or another word, paradise is used for Abraham's bosom. But to me, that shows the heart of God. He says to that thief, he says, this day you shall be with me. See, it's not about behavior. It's not about um, sin management. It's about God's eternal love to be with us. He wants to be with us. He walked with the disciples, and he loved just being with them. He loved to go to Martha and Lazarus' home and just be with them. I know several months ago we said how God is attracted to the mess. It's so true. God is attracted to mess. He's attracted to those who have, see their need of him. I love that song we sang, I need you every hour. He's, God's attracted to little David that can't, can't win a battle. God's attracted to just uh, 300 men with Gideon instead of a whole army. He's attracted to weakness. He's attracted to foolishness in the sense of, you know, those who are foolish enough to believe him and trust him. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to find one who would trust him and believe on him. He's, he's attracted to our mess. He's attracted to our need of him. It's the prideful. It's those who think they know it all that he... He resists the proud, the scripture says. He reveals these things to the babes. He reveals these things, these things to people who have the need of him. And, and they say, I am blind. Lord, teach me how to see. He's attracted to that. So never think your mess, my mess, repels him. He's attracted to the mess. He's attracted to the mess because he knows in the mess you'll look to him. In the mess you'll, you'll need him. In the mess he can help us. In the mess he can glorify himself and help us and strengthen us and, and, and lavish his love upon us in the mess. It's awesome. It's a win-win situation, what he has set up for us in this new covenant. You know, what, one problem with this, now, now moving to this, the dynamic. Okay, let's, after, I just want to say that about the eternal purpose, because that's really important, because that's part of how we're transformed. And, and by the way, the word transformed, the word transformed does not mean something transforming on the inside of you. Transformed means something that is happening outwardly, manifesting what is already true inside. You see? We are manifesting to men gradually more and more fruit. Fruit is increasing. We go from faith to faith, from glory to glory, and outwardly men see a change. They see fruit. That's what men call transformation. But the inward reality is not, has not changed. You're just as righteous and just as holy, just as much a son or a daughter within the moment you were created new in Christ Jesus. You see that? It's so cool to see that. Okay, so one of the problems with how Christ is manifested in us, one of the problems, there's, there's, all believers agree, all believers agree that a believer should exhibit Christ-like attributes and Christ-like abilities. Um, all believers ag agree with that. But what we don't agree on is how that happens. How that happens. How is fruit born? How does fruit come forth in the believer's life? And there are basically two... Well, let me, ask, let me share this with you. People respond to us 
I know you have this, you've had this response before when you're talking about the grace of God and the finished work of Christ. You have some people say maybe to you that, um, well, you just believe you can just live any way you want to. Or, oh, you just believe there's no consequences for sin. Or, you, you believe God doesn't care how you act. Or, what they said to Paul, well, let's just go sin that grace may abound. Now, why do people respond to, to the message of the finished work of Christ, the message of a gift of righteousness, the message of union with Christ? Why do they respond that way? The reason why, saints, is because in their mind, in their thinking, the way to become more Christ-like is a law, works-based thinking with a focus on sin. If the premise, if the premise is in the thinking of the people, the believers, other believers, if, if the premise is in the thinking of the other believers that, that our heart is still evil as a Christian, our heart is still evil, and God needs to clean up our heart and work on our heart, and you have a law-based, works-based mentality with a focus on sin to get the person better, cleaned up, whatever, then they will respond to the true gospel that way because it doesn't compute with what they're thinking is how righteousness is produced. You see that? They, that's why they respond that way. In their thinking, they're, they, in their mind, they have, a, they have a formula in their mind, whether they realize it or not, and the formula says to, to, to produce righteous living, you have to know the law. You have to obey, be obedient to the law. You have to, you have to do works. You have to be, you have to do, you know, be obedient. You have to, you have to focus on sin. You have to, you have to repent of sin. You have to change yourself, you know, and many believers get past the justification part and they'll say, no, no, we, we totally believe in all of, it's all by the work of Christ. It's all by grace through faith to be justified and so forth. But this whole thing about sanctification or how Christ is produced in our life, that's what I'm talking about today. That's where, that's where they, get, they go back to a law-based, work-based mentality, focusing on sin, and that's why they respond that way to us when we, when we present this awesome reality because they don't see how that will produce righteousness. You see? I had somebody tell me not long ago, they said, you know, yeah, I know what Galatians says. I know, I know, I know, but that just doesn't work. <laughs> they don't believe it works. They don't really believe that God's way works. You've got to hold people accountable. You've got to expose their sin. You've got to, you've got to have them searching their heart for sin. That's the way you do it. That's the way you've got, you got to make sure that they know that if they step out of line too much, there's judgment. And, you know, and that's, that's how people are going to, you know, ship up, shape up. If they don't have that, they're not going to do it. It just doesn't work this other way. It's just like when Jesus called Peter out of the boat. It's a perfect picture of the Christian life because Peter and the other disciples, they understood how a boat could keep them afloat, even though it was sinking. They knew their only hope was that boat. They had to get the water out of there. They had to do something because they knew they could not walk on water. This new dynamic of Christ manifesting himself through us is just like that. It seems impossible. It seems um, foolish. It seems to have no power to it. It's like stepping out of the boat and walking on water. 
That's why he did that, to show his new way. It's not about trying to save the boat. It's not about focusing on the boat. It's about looking at Jesus himself. I love that song we sang about our eyes are on you. We're looking at you, Jesus. That's his dynamic. All the songs today were awesome because they're all talking about rest and looking at him and beholding him. It's his, it's his new way. It's the new way of the new covenant. It's not to look at our sin, not to look at the flesh, but to look at him. So Peter found himself walking on water, doing something impossible, and that's why no flesh can glory in his presence when we do it his way, because no flesh can take credit for walking on water. It's the power of God that keeps him up. And and the moment Peter took his eyes off of Jesus is when he began to sink. All that's teaching us the new dynamic. It's not about saving the boat. And look look how much freedom he has. I mean, when you don't don't receive and believe this awesome new way of God, you're you're stuck in this stinky old boat that's sinking, and you're trying your best, and you're all hot and sweaty and trying to save your life, you know, getting the water out of the boat. But when you see God's way, you're suddenly out on the water, free, with the breeze blowing in your hair, and Jesus is with you. And you got the whole lake to walk on. You see, it's awesome. That's the liberty we have in the spirit. If we see his way, it's awesome. So people don't believe in the how correctly, and that's why they respond that way to us. Okay, there, there are two approaches basically that's out there, I believe, saints, and, and we've all heard this before. And those two approaches are the, the law works-based thinking which focuses on sin, and then the grace-faith um, foundation that focuses on Christ and not sin. And it really goes back to the two trees. The two trees are the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Actually, the law was actually a manifestation of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Scripture says that sin, the knowledge of sin is by the law. The knowledge of sin is by the law. Also, the knowledge of good is by the law. So what God did with the Jew, he actually manifested that tree in the law. Not so, as Paul says, so they would stop sinning, but so that sin would become exceedingly sinful and that transgressions would increase. God was showing showing the Jewish people, showing the Jewish people that that tree is death, that the law cannot produce life. And of course, he had hidden in that covenant the temple, the priesthood, and the sacrifices, the shadows of the good thing that was coming in Christ. And the law was added temporarily just to show the Jewish people that that tree is not the way to life. It's the way to death. For the law, the the letter of the law kills, but the spirit gives life. Okay, so it's also the two covenants. It's the two covenants. The covenant of law and the covenant of grace are totally opposite covenants. And so when we see that we have in our thinking that we're supposed to work on ourselves to be more righteous, um, then we're actually moving under the wrong tree and the wrong covenant in our way of thinking. Now, there's a thinking out there in, in, in the body of Christ. Some people teach that, we, that the believer has indwelling sin. Indwelling sin. And it's a, it's a law-based, works-based, sin-focused approach to becoming more Christ-like. The truth is this, saints. Paul never taught that the believer had indwelling sin in his person, in his being. We do have indwelling sin in the flesh, the power of indwelling sin is in the flesh. It's in the members of our body, the apostles taught. In the members of our body of this creation, there's this mystery of iniquity that is still in the members of our body, the, the apostles taught. It is in the flesh, and it is indwelling sin in the flesh. But the truth is, the power of sin in the flesh or in the members of our body is not the person of you. 
The old man is dead, Paul said. The old man used to be joined to this flesh, this body, used to be in as a part of this creation, dead to God, darkened in our understanding to, to the ways of God. And when, when God raises up from the dead, Paul said the nature of this new covenant is God raises the dead and calls into being that which did not exist before. That's the new creation. So when God cut away the body of this flesh, Colossians says, when he cut the real you, soul and spirit, the real person, when he cut you away from this flesh by this great mystery of spiritual circumcision, then what happened is he left the power of sin in the mortal body. So there is indwelling sin in the flesh. That's why we talk, it like, we talk like that when we say, when we sin, we walked after the flesh. Because it's the power of sin in the flesh. But it's not who you really are. That's why John says, the seed of God abides within the believer. And they cannot sin, for the seed of God abides within them. The new creation cannot sin. That's awesome. Romans 7 says, no good thing dwells in, in me. And then Paul corrected himself real fast. He goes, that is not in my flesh. No good thing dwells in my flesh. But in me, oh yes, every good thing that is God is in him. A new creation, holy, blameless, you see, righteous. That's why he said the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit's alive because of righteousness. That's why he said the outer man is decaying every day, but the inner man is being renewed every day. Awesome dichotomy that has happened here. So if you have the premise, if you have the premise that indwelling sin is in the heart of the believer, then that's how we get off track in trying to make Christ, uh, how to form Christ in people. We think we have to have them search their heart for evil. We think we have to uh, have them acknowledge sin, focus on sin, repent of sin. All that focus and obedience and all that, it's because the premise is wrong. The premise is wrong. The premise is not, it is not true that you have an evil heart in Christ. The old man is dead. The new man is alive. Behold, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, all things have become new. Spiritual circumcision of the heart is what Paul said has come. A new heart joined to God. You cannot be joined to God and have evil in your heart. And think about this, saints. If we have the premise right, if we really see that we have a new heart, that we have a perfect new heart, and Paul says, know each other no more after the flesh, but after the spirit, then I can see all my brothers and sisters with a perfect new heart. And that's what we're supposed to do. Sin in the flesh profits nothing. Sin in the, trying to deal with sin in the flesh is, is a waste of time. That's not even who you are. Does that make sense? It's awesome, saints. This new dynamic, is, it sets us free to focus on him. That's why the apostle said, set your mind on things above. Set them, like the song this morning we sang, set your mind on things above where you are, seated with Christ in heavenly places. So our whole focus now is, is looking at him, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Consider him, the scripture says, look to him, look to him, look to him, for he now is your life. He is my life. So this new way of looking is looking to him. It's awesome. It's, it's like this premise is really, and, and, saints, ask, ask, a, ask a believer this question, because it can't be, this is one of those questions, that it can't be both. Ask a believer, do you believe you have a perfect new heart? Do you believe that? I think a lot of believers would say, no, I, I hope to. I mean, I'm working on it. But I don't really think I have a perfect new heart because I have evil thoughts sometimes and I do sin. I sin sometimes and I don't see that as being a perfect new heart. That's the problem. That's a huge problem. We're believing a lie. We're not seeing the new heart. We're not seeing the new creation. Because if you see the new creation, 
You don't focus on the sin in the flesh. As Paul says, consider your members of your body dead. Don't even deal with it because it's dead. Focus on the heavenly reality where you are. Behold Christ. For the new man is is renewed in the knowledge and revelation of him who created him in holiness and righteousness. See? So the whole focus of the new man is to look to Christ who made him. And then what happens is, as I look to the, at the glory of God in the face of Christ, that, which I, who, that who, who I am is manifested because I'm being transformed in the same image that I was created in by Christ, outwardly, transformed with fruit. So God's way is never to look back at the sin, but to look at him and look at Christ. But we have to have the premise right. We have to really believe that our heart is perfect. And when we do sin and when we, when we are tempted and we do have evil thoughts, we've got to recognize that is the flesh. That is not the real me. That's very important. That's very important. Because if you think that's you, it, it just it throws a wrench in everything. Because, listen, God... And, and God's not counting those sins against us either as a Christian when we walk after the flesh. That's awesome. He cannot count righteousness for you and your sin against you at the same time. It's impossible. So the moment you think God's counting your sin against you when you do walk after the flesh, then you've messed up again the truth that sets you free. Because God cannot count righteousness for you and your sin against you at the same time. And he doesn't cease to count his righteousness for you when you commit a sin as a believer and then after you do some ritual of repentance, confession, ask forgiveness, whatever you, whatever you do, cry, whatever you think you have to do to earn God's love again, he doesn't then not count your sin against you and count his righteousness for you. It doesn't work that way. In fact, that's the whole point of the covenant, that in this new covenant, I'll remember their sins no more. I'll be merciful to all their iniquities. But see, we don't think that works. Not we, but the church as a whole. We don't think that works. We don't think that works. We, we'd rather stay in the boat and take our chances. And Jesus is going, that boat is sinking. <laughs> and I think a lot of people are, are maybe actually being pushed in a way by the, by the Spirit of God. You know how the eagles do it? They, the little eaglets are in the nest, and, and the, the mother eagle has all the nice fluffy down feathers for the baby eagles. And then as they get old enough and they're ready to fly, they don't keep, she doesn't keep the down in there. She starts pucking, taking the down feathers off and all those thorns from those, those limbs and, and from the nest start to bother the little eaglet. And after a while, he, the eaglet's going, I'm getting out of here. This, is no, this used to be fun, but... You know, and he's like trying to fly, and, and the mother's like waiting, and, and the little eaglet just perishes, you know, just takes a dive, and she comes down and swoops up and picks him up, brings him back up. He tries it again. She swoops and picks him back up. And then eventually he's like, whoa. And she's like, that's it. I think a lot of people are being pushed toward this grace by God's mercy in a way, you know, whatever your circumstances may be, some situation that you're, 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 you're in a place where you have to trust him. You know, we have to go, I, I just got to get out of this boat. I, I, I just got to, I got to, I got to believe because I can't, this is not working. And it's, it's God's mercy that's bringing us like, you know, the storm that almost sunk that boat was all God's doing. And he's like, I'm here. Come, Peter. And then Peter experienced a new way of living. And then when Jesus got in the boat, the storm ceased. I tell you, it's awesome what God is doing. He's working in us to, he's the author and finisher of our faith. 
He wants us to be strong in the faith. He wants us to trust him. We are anemic in the church as a whole. We are anemic because we've been fed a steady diet of law and and commandments to obey and a focus on sin and works. The law is not of faith, the scripture says. It is not of faith. If the law is not of faith, then your faith muscle never gets any workout by just hearing rules and trying to keep rules. The faith just sits there dormant. It never has any workout, never grows, never gets strong. We don't, we're just weak in the faith. We, so we have all these rules like, okay, I got to go to church every Sunday. Um, I can't drink wine. I can't, uh, you know, Paul says all these people have rules. He called those people weak in the faith. Those are weak, people who are weak in the faith who, had, who live by rules. The ones that are strong in the faith realize that every day is the same, man. It's just like, hey, we're out of time and space in Christ. We're not even here. Really. Though we are. I mean, it's, it blocks your mind. We are in the heavens, yet we're walking the earth, just as he did. So strong in faith means a transcendent view of, of reality. The truth will set us free, and law binds. The law is not of faith. Jesus said, he who believes on me, out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Not by obedience to commandments, not by obedience to law, but he who believes on me releases the flow of the spirit of life. And it's the spirit that puts to death the deeds of the body, the power of sin in the body. The spirit of life puts to death the deeds of the body, to believe on him. John said this, what is the victory that overcomes this world? What is the victory? Obedience to law? Even our faith. Simply believing. Jesus said, did I, did I not say that you would, if you would only believe, you would see the glory of God? You see? So if we have a steady diet of laws to keep and uh, work law-based thinking, what happens is believers build on the foundation which they have now in Christ. They build wood, hay, stubble. Wood, hay, stubble are built on that foundation of Christ. They're going to heaven. They're going to be saved, the scripture says, but they're building with wood, hay, stubble by building with law-based thinking, works-based thinking, sin-focused thinking. And the scripture says, Paul says, that the fires of this life, this is not a reference to some judgment seat of Christ where we stand before God and the fire burns us up and we, you know, we have a little black charcoal left, you know, and we made it. Like the cartoons, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not that way. What, God is talk, what Paul's talking about is that the fire of life, the trials of your faith are like fire, Peter said. Peter says, think it not strange, the fiery trial of your faith. It's this world that the tribulation of this world, the persecution of this world, the resistance, the hostility from sinners in this world, that's what burns up the wood, hay, and stubble. That's, that's what causes people to, to give up and just throw the towel in and say, I don't know why God let this happen to me and become bitter sometimes because they were building with wood, hay, stubble, with a steady diet of law, and they never really had promises and revelation to believe in. Because those who have believed can go through the fire and come out on the other side. God is with me. God is with me. They overcame the beast by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, not loving their lives even into the death. Isn't that awesome? And that's what God is doing. He's raising up a strong body, a bride. He's in love with this bride. He's building her strong in the faith, revealing to her all that he has done, all that he is, what he is, so that we would believe and, and, real, and let go of the law, let go of the boat that's sinking, let go of our self-effort, and allow him to grow us in the, in the spirit, that we might be rooted and grounded in Christ, Paul says, and being built up in him. 
that we might come to the fullness of the maturity of Christ, that we, that we say with all boldness to live is simply Christ. There's no explanation for my life, but Christ lives in me. See? There is no explanation for my life except that Christ lives in me. We were crucified with him, judged with him. Nevertheless, we live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in this body, I live by simple faith. Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's beauty. It's beautiful. It's profound. It's it's simple, but it's profound. The implications of this are amazing. We have a new heart, a new creation. Now all that remains is to nourish and nourish and, and feed the new creation. Okay, so wrapping this up real quick. How does the new creation feed? How do we feed? It's not, it's not about looking at the, uh, at the sin in the flesh. That's what I'm trying to make so clear, that the sin in the flesh is not you. It's not what God is dealing with. It's like Jacob and Esau. God doesn't recognize Esau. He recognizes Jacob, only Jacob. And Jacob must open his eyes and see that God is in this place, and I knew it not. Jacob must open his eyes and see that the heavens are open. Jacob must see a new dynamic where if he puts sticks in water troughs, that what they see, the cattle see, they become like what they see. That's Jacob. That's you. The new creation must see him and become like him in manifest ways because that's his way to look, to reveal himself to you. That's Jacob. That's the new man who came after Esau. First the natural, then the spiritual. He has the blessing and he has the birthright. Whoo! It's hidden there. It's, it's all hidden there. His new way, his dynamic of looking at him, just looking at him. So three things I think about. We need to, the way the new man is nourished, the new creation. Three ways. First, this awareness of our union with him must, must become so awesome in us. It must grow in us. You see what the enemy has done? The enemy has so sold us a bill of goods. He has so deceived the church in making us focus on sin and making us focus on trying to get sin uh, forgiven again and again and again. It was the lie centuries ago in the mass transubstantiation, the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ. He was sacrificed over and over and over and over and over again. And you had to be in the church and under the priest to get forgiveness over and over and over again. The Protestants broke out a little bit, but they still had the mentality. We still had the mentality of a forgiveness that's over and over and over and over again. It's it's the greatest uh, plan the enemy has ever done. He didn't deny Christ. He has said, it must be done over and over and again and again and again. The power of the gospel is the finality of the gospel. The power of, of what he did is the finality of it. He sat down, finished the work and sat down. It is done on the cross. He said, it is finished. And that's what religion fights against. The spirit of religion fights against the finality of the Son of God. And you and I must stand firm. We must stand bold and be courageous and not back down on this awesome truth that it is finished. It's awesome. So I see, I see we need to grow in this awesome awareness of our union with Him. It needs to be so, uh, so real to us. We need to, and see, if you're sin-focused, or if you feel like you're still in your sin, those two things don't jive. You can't, you can't grow in an awareness of your union with Christ if you see God counting your sins against you. You can't. It's impossible. And God knew that. That's why he made the covenant the way he did. 
That's why Hebrews says he who has once been cleansed should have no more consciousness of sin. It doesn't mean they don't sin anymore. It means they have no more consciousness that they are a guilty sinner or that sin is being counted against them. That's Hebrews 10. That's the awesome work of the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, not just covered it. So we must, we must, we must break free from this sin consciousness and let the Spirit of God open our eyes to this awesome union we have in Christ. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come and show you the things that belong to me. That's what the Spirit does. He doesn't convict you of sin in the flesh. There's no scripture anywhere in the Bible, not anywhere, not a single passage in all of the Bible that says the Holy Spirit is sent to convict you of sin. It it says this, the Holy Spirit is sent to convict the world of sin because they believe not on Jesus. But that same Spirit is sent to the believer to convince you of righteousness and judgment. Convince you that you're righteous and judgment because the prince of this world has been judged, Jesus said. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It's awesome. Jesus said the Holy Spirit has come to show you the things that belong to him and now to you because you and I are in him. See, the Holy Spirit's not about sin. The Holy Spirit's about Christ. The Holy Spirit focuses on him. He he glorifies Christ. He reveals what is his. And now what is yours in him. It's awesome. The Spirit will lead us, the Scripture says, lead us, guide us into all the truth. It, It doesn't happen overnight. The Spirit will guide us into all the truth. We'll see this, and we go, oh, and the Spirit will say, the Spirit will go, oh, now look at this. Oh, now look at this. Oh, now look at this. He can't show it to you all at one time. It's like if you were in the morning, you know, waking up from night. God just doesn't go, bam, morning, you know. He's like, oh, God. You know, it's gradual. You know, the sun comes up. You gradually see the light break in the clouds. You kind of get, you know, get to coffee. Sun comes up. That's a picture of revelation. It's, it, the revelation of Christ shines brighter and brighter until the perfect day, until, until noontime when it's a blue sky and a bright sun, and we see clearly. That, that's how it works. Okay. So union with Christ is so important. And secondly, focusing, focusing on heavenly realities is so important. Focusing on heavenly realities is so important because that is our meat and our drink. That's our meat and our drink, to eat and drink of him. Jesus said you must eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. What does that mean? It means never forget his sacrifice. Never forget that your sins are not being counted against you. Hear this, saints. Jesus said you must continually eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. This is what he means by that. You must never forget that his sacrifice took away our sin and no sin is ever counted against you again. That's a daily remembrance. That's an awesome meal. That's an awesome meal that releases the life in you. Never forget that his sacrifice means that God was in Christ, reconciling the whole world into himself, not counting their sins against them anymore. That's a... That's a a meal we need to take every day. That's why when we have the, the physical covenant meal with the bread and the wine, that's just a, a physical way of doing it with a body of people to celebrate this awesome work. But spiritually, we should eat and drink of his body and his blood every day and simply reminding ourselves, oh God, I just blew it, but I just thank you. I thank you that you're not counting that sin against me. Teach me how to walk by you. Teach me how to live by you, Lord. I love you so much. I come boldly to a throne of grace. 
not a throne of judgment, to find help and mercy in time of need. Thank you, Lord. What a meal. What a meal this is. What a, what a God. Thank you, Lord. That's awesome. That's what the new creation feeds on that. Now, you see how religion doesn't teach that? So the new creation is not getting fed. Not getting fed. Not getting the food that belongs to the children. That's the children's bread. You see? You see how religion has kept you from your food, from your bread? We're afraid to eat it. We're afraid to believe such a thing. We're afraid to believe such a thing. It's your, it's your meal. It's your bread. He died to give it to you. That every day you remember that his sacrifice removed your sin as far as the east is from the west, and he will never count your sin against you again. It's the children's bread. It's what gives you life and strength and hope. That's why Paul says we, we faint not, for we have received this great mercy. You faint when you don't see this mercy. You faint and grow weary when you don't see this mercy. But Paul says we faint not because we have received this awesome mercy. We can't miss this thing if we tried. We can't lose if we tried. That's why the prophet said the day's going to come when God will have a highway of holiness. He will, he will erect a highway of holiness in the wilderness. And even the, um, the wayfarer, the, the erring man will not fall off of it. It'll be such a wide highway, you can't get off of it. I mean, you th- think about this. Think about, oh, you're, you're on this highway, uh, the highway of holiness, because he has made you holy. Like our song we sang today, holiness is Christ in me. That's awesome. I love that song. Holiness is Christ in me. So now that I'm in Christ, Christ is in me, that's the highway of holiness. And you think, okay, I've got to make sure I, I, I don't get off the straight and narrow here. And then, you know, you have like, say there's like a little light here. You see, you know, you're not sure how far the barrier is. You know, you're, you're trying to walk in the straight and narrow. And, and then God says, Son, let me show you something. So he brings the light up. And you go. This highway's huge. I can't even see the end of it over there. I can't see the end over there. And God goes, told you. (laughs) You will not err on this because he's the one that made you holy. He's the one that made you holy. We, we can rest. And I'll tell you what that parable really means, the straight and narrow. That's another thing that's been mistaught. The scripture says that, that the, the gate, the gate is narrow. The gate is narrow into life. But the gate that goes to destruction is broad. The gate. But the gate is narrow because there's only one way. It's narrow because it's only Christ and Christ alone. No man can come to the Father but by me, Jesus said. So the gate is narrow. And you have to walk, only you can fit through that gate. Your daddy can't believe for you. Your grandfather can't believe for you. Your grandmother can't believe for you. It's a narrow gate that only you and God, you must believe. You must choose him. And when you walk through the narrow gate that only fits you and fits him, beyond that gate is a large plain. David said, the Lord has brought me into a large place. Liberty, freedom, it's the whole lake to walk on. The parable, go back and read that parable. It does not say that the journey of the Christian life is a straight and narrow journey or walk or path. It does not say that. Read it carefully. It says the gate is straight and narrow. And when when you go through that gate, you enter into life. He said, life. Listen, God is so good. In Eden, God said, you can eat of all the trees you want, all the flavors you want. Just this one tree don't eat of. This one tree of law, this one tree that teaches you a lie, that says you can just have knowledge of right and wrong and be like me. You can't be like me. 
just with knowledge of right and wrong. You can't because you can only be like me if you have my life. Because only I can be like me through you, the tree of life. But they had such freedom. He didn't care if they ate bananas or oranges or whatever. You see, there's freedom, this straight and narrow gate we've all entered into. And now we have this open place to walk in. And thirdly, from heavenly realities, we need to have an emphasis on believing, believing and not doing. That doesn't mean we don't do, but the emphasis must be on believing, not on doing. Too much teaching out there is the emphasis is on doing and be on being obedient. The emphasis must be on believing and not doing. The doing will follow. Paul says, I labored more than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God in me labored. So there's a lot of doing that happens, but it happens as a fruit of his life because we believe. Okay, just wrapping this up, three things. I just want to share some thoughts about how, real quickly, how, how we, the new man actually eats. And I, I thought of three things, beholding Christ in our inner man, beholding Christ in creation, and beholding Christ in the scriptures. Those three things are a message in themselves. So I, I'm just going to hit, hit them just real briefly, but awesome understanding. Saints, remember, remember this, the believers never had a Bible for centuries. They didn't have a Bible. They didn't have a Bible to read. That's why I listed scriptures last. Beholding Christ in the inner man, beholding Christ in creation, and beholding Christ in the scriptures. That's how the new man feeds. The early believers for centuries and centuries didn't have a Bible. Most of them couldn't read. What they did have was the witness of the Spirit within themselves. The Scripture says you, the, the believer has the witness of the Spirit within themselves, that they are the children of God. The early believers had an awareness of their union with Him. They beheld Christ in their inner man. What does that mean? You know how we say in real estate, location, location, location is the key? In spiritual life, I believe it is awareness, awareness, awareness. They were aware. See, Jacob was not aware that God was in that place. He wasn't aware of his union. Beholding Christ in your inner man is a growing awareness that he is right here. He's right here. He's within. He's within. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit. He's right here within. Behold, I'm with you always. Now, what I do sometimes, saints, is I, I like to just get still and quiet. I'm, a few practical things that I do. You gotta, sometimes you have to just get away from the noise. Jesus would do that. He would walk away from the crowds. Just get away from the noise. Turn the radio off. Drive your car sometimes with no music on, no, not even worship music, no, no, no talk radio, no political talk show, which is hard for me because I love to hear the Rush Limbaugh, but, but, but get away and be, be quiet. Watch what happens. See, when you have this new mindset, the mindset on the spirit, not the mindset on the flesh. The mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace. When this new mindset begins to take over, this new reality, just by being quiet, things begin to rise effortlessly. Thoughts, his thoughts. And the very first thing he does is just love on you. Just love on you. He'll say, I missed you. I missed your gaze. I've, I've, been, I've been missing your gaze. You know, what that, you know, that means gaze, like when you just, you look toward him in your heart. Yeah, he, he loves your gaze. He loves your gaze. So beholding Christ in our inner man, is, it's, it's become a lost thing in the church because we're so law-based and works-focused and sin-conscious. 
But when we get the truth down deep, beholding Christ in our inner man by simply being still and quiet, taking a walk, letting him. Uh, Secondly, beholding Christ in creation. Creation is awesome. Jesus referred to creation many times uh, to reveal the Father's love. He goes, look, look at the sparrows. Look at the sparrows. They, They neither sow nor reap. That's creation teaching the Father's love. He provides for them. Not one sparrow dies that my father is not aware of it. You know, God goes to every funeral of a sparrow. Every, every little sparrow that dies, God is there. Even though nobody else is there at his funeral, God is there. Jesus said, not one sparrow dies that my father doesn't know about it. Behold, the lilies of the field, they don't, they don't have to sow and buy clothes. God erased them. Not even Solomon in all of his glory was like one of these. Look at the purple flowers and the red flowers. and That's God teaching us his love, his goodness, his care. Behold creation. The scripture says, talk to the earth and it shall teach thee. There's a verse in Revelation that says that God hides the woman, the bride, in a, a, a place prepared by God, which is Christ. And the dragon comes forth and the beast opens his mouth and brings a flood out of his mouth, words out of his mouth, to move her from that place of rest. This is what the scripture says. But the earth opened up her mouth and drank in the flood. See, there are riches waiting for you to discover in creation that talk about him. His signature is on everything that he made. The earth opened her mouth. In other words, the earth brought revelation, words, revelation from the earth of of the Christ and it drank in the lies from the beast and the woman remained in her rest. It's awesome. Even even the way plants get energy, saints, it's beautiful. God made plants to go to look to the light, to the sun. Just look to the sun. Big sunflowers, look to the sun. Big sunflowers, follow the sun. And the, the light, light itself comes into the leaves. Chlorophyll, we call chlorophyll the green in plants. And it takes light and it takes, it takes, it's a, a chemical reaction in the chlorophyll that produces glucose, sugar. The plants are fed by the light. What is God saying in creation? He's saying what we're saying here. It's by looking at his glory. It's just looking at him. And we have been wired. The new creation has been wired. We have a DNA in us like the plants. God made the plants that way to teach us the spiritual truth about his ways. The invisible things of God are clearly seen and understood by that which has been made, the scripture says. So as we are just plants, trees, we've received the seed which is Christ in his finished work and we just rest. And watch the light turn that into sugar and nourishment for us. And finally, the last thing is beholding Christ in the scripture. And that's like a whole message by itself. It's so awesome to see how there are two trees in this book. And you can read this book with the eyes of God, with his glasses on, and you'll see the tree of life. But if you don't read it with his eyes, you'll see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil on every page, even the New Testament. It's a revelation to see Christ in the scriptures. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you think... You search these scriptures and you think that in these scriptures you have life, but they speak of me and you won't come to me that you might have life. At the very end of his days, he opened the minds of his disciples, the scripture says in Luke. He opened their minds that they might understand the scriptures and when he opened their minds, they saw Christ on every page. So we behold Christ in our inner man, we behold Christ in creation, we behold Christ in the scriptures and we are nourished, we're fed and we grow. Last word. When Israel was been bit by, bit by the snakes, remember? The snakes were biting Israel, and God told Moses to build a bronze serpent and hang it on a pole and raise it up. A bronze serpent speaks of judgment, bronze judgment. So it's a picture of Christ judging sin, judging the evil one on the cross, as Jesus referred to this event later, and he said, as 
Moses raised the serpent on the pole, so shall the Son of Man be raised up because God would judge all sin and judge Satan himself by the work of Christ. Listen how God said to the people who were getting bit by snakes, a picture of sin. What did he say? Did he say, be careful of, of the snakes? Walk around the snakes? Uh, know, know your snakes? Uh, these with the stripes here, they're okay. These with these stripes are deadly. Know your snakes. Walk away from the snakes. Prepare, that, prepare to walk away from the snakes. Plan to walk away from the snakes. No! Nothing about the snakes. He said, take your eyes off the snakes. Take your eyes off the snakes. Moses, raise the pole. Raise the bronze serpent. Raise it. All who look at the raised serpent on the pole shall be healed. That's God's way. Not to focus on sin. Take your eyes off of the flesh, off of sin. Behold Christ. Behold his work. Behold the judgment of God for sin and be healed. Please stand up. Thank you so much for your patience. Oh, God. Thank you, Lord, so much for helping us see these things. Your ways are so simple yet so profound. Your way is a way of rest, a way of peace. Oh, Lord, you said, I leave my joy with you, not as the world gives. I leave my peace with you, not as the world gives. Oh, my bride, I cherish you. I nourish you. I show you myself that you might see who you are. I show you myself that you might see who you are. Oh, my bride, you have a new name. I gave it to you. You have a new name. And only you and I know it. Oh, bride, behold me in your inner being, for there I am, closer than your breath. Behold me in the skies, in the blue skies, in the green trees, in the rain that comes and the snow that falls in the winter in the mountains and the lakes behold me in all my creation behold me in the scriptures behold me it is written for you see with my eyes and know that the scriptures are not life I am life, of which the scripture speaks of. I am life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have done it. I prepared a place that you may be where I am, and I where you are. We are from two realms, just as I was. So are you. From two realms, my bride. And all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And I give you that authority in my name. I love you, my bride. I have loved you with an everlasting love. And with loving kindness, I have drawn you 
to myself.